Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're trying to improve your golf game, Callaway knows you can't hit the ball further by doing the same old thing. It takes unconventional thinking to transform your game, and that's what Callaway did with the new Maverick Driver. Maverick Drivers were designed using advanced AI. Callaway's supercomputer tested and refined thousands of virtual prototypes until it created Callaway's fastest, most forgiving driver. New distance is out there. It takes a Maverick to find it. Explore Maverick Drivers at CallawayGolf.ca. Reopening the economy isn't just about your neighborhood bars and restaurants or the challenges that the oil sector faces or even bailing out the airline industry. You don't have to be a parent to understand that reopening schools and childcare centers is critical to restoring the economy and getting a lot of people back into the workforce. I'm Gabe Friedman, and on this week's Down to Business, as part of our series on reopening Canada, I talked to University of Toronto economist Clementine Von Effenter. Bonne Fontaine is a dynamic scholar in her own right and a former student of the famous French economist Thomas Piketty. Her research focuses on the economics of labor, gender, and inequality. We had a fast-paced conversation in which Bonne Fontaine marshaled an impressive array of real examples about how the pandemic is changing our economy and what that means for working families. Clementine, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Across the country, schools are reopening and there's a lot of debate about the health impacts of this decision. I was wondering how you think about the impacts. Yeah, so we know that with the current COVID-19 pandemic, parents have been facing an added challenge uh, as those that have previously relied on schools and childcare centers, you know, for to take care of their kids, they were forced to take on new roles, often as educators or childcare providers or on the clock, because schools and childcare centers were closed. And another dimension is that the pandemic also interrupted other forms of childcare, such as, for instance, relying on older family members, such as grandparents. So this has definitely been a burden for a lot of working families. And a greater attention is now devoted on like finding proper solutions to prevent, you know, the, the large scale economic consequences of having these childcare centers closed, particularly among women. So the idea is to try to find proper safety opening for schools to ensure that childcare centers do not go bankrupt because a lot of them across the country, but especially, for instance, in the U.S., do rely on private tuitions to, to survive economically. So making sure that these uh, centers have the resources to adapt their buildings and uh, practice new protocols to make sure that the air is flowing and that to encourage workplace flexibility. So there are definitely there should be some attention on the reopening of these childcare centers because of the, the important economic impact it has on parents. Just to unpack that a little bit, we spend all this time looking at the jobs report, how many people are finding work. Sort of critical to that metric is this idea that there's this invisible network of childcare centers and school centers out there. And if you don't have those, that's going to affect how many people can work. 
Yeah, and I think it's also important to look at the situation prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. There were already really important gender imbalances within households. If you look, for instance, at time use surveys, like where people just report how much time they spend on a given activity, you knew that women were on average spending one hour more of household activities per day than men. And this is everywhere? This is mostly North America, uh, but you observe similar patterns and even more greater gender imbalances in other countries countries in European countries, for instance. In my own work, I've studied the situation of France, where we also had these imbalances. And we also saw in our research that the school schedule of children affects uh, the gender gap in pay. So starting from a situation of the value of domestic work not being necessarily recognized, we know that the school and daycare closures due to the COVID-19 pandemic have increased even more caregiving responsibilities for working parents. And by parents, I often mean women. And the first research that we have out there is already showing that mothers with young children have reduced their working hours four to five times more than fathers, at least in North America. So it is building on a situation of pre-existing gender inequality, but it's making it even more visible after the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, it seems like part of the problem or part of the issue here is that we don't think about the work like childcare, which, which would happen inside a home or a ho- inside an apartment or a household We don't think of that always as being connected to the economy. Yeah, there is a very long debate historically on how we should value domestic work in terms of, you know, is it like work that can be provided by a market and how do we actually assign a value to domestic work? It's really a question that scholars have been struggling with for decades. And I think it's very clear right now that the issue of childcare is not an issue of only women or an issue of personal problem, but it's an economic question. And a lot of people have been talking about the fact that we gave a lot of money to the airline industry, for instance, but we didn't actually invest a lot in the childcare industry, even though we know that this would have important impact on labor market outcomes, especially for women. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. I would think, too, that this will show up, this will start to show up, too, if women are taking more of this burden, then eventually there'll be performance evaluations possibly where this could show up? Yeah, well, this is an open question for firms, like how are they are going to incorporate this into performance assessment and promotion decisions? Because I'm going to give you a quick example in academia, for instance. If you work in a university, uh, you are on what we call a tenure track, which is a sort of long trial period of time where you are supposed to show how productive you are, and then the university decides whether to hire you permanently or not. And so uh, following the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of universities have decided to extend these uh, tenure track period for everybody saying that, you know, we know this is going to affect your productivity. You're not going to be able to go to conferences or even to access the data and the experiment you need to conduct. So we're going to take that into account. And this is a good thing, but it's also true that if we have these policies that are gender neutral, that affect everybody the same way, and including among women, uh, does not differentiate whether women had childcare responsibilities or not, this might, you know, recreate or reinforce some uh, imbalances and can potentially affect uh, negatively mothers in, uh, in academia. So that's just one example, but to show that a lot of these uh, decisions on how we should assess performance uh, in light of the current pandemic is something that is, is still an open question for firms. I want to ask a follow-up question on that. We, we've mostly just been talking about how childcare can affect people who are already in the workplace, whether schools open or don't open. Do you have any sense about 
the sort of economic impacts of just removing schooling for a year for certain children more than others? Yeah. So on children, the COVID pandemic has emphasized educational inequalities across the world that pre-existed. Like the gap in performance based on family is is something, is a persistent feature of school systems at any time, pretty much. And some economists have been trying to document how this has been aggravated with the current pandemic. So the work from the Opportunity Insights team at Harvard, for instance, has been monitoring the economic impact of COVID-19 on many dimensions. And one of the dimensions is student progress. So they use data from this app called Zern, which is a sort of homeschool resource used in many school districts. And they've been tracking the data about the use of this application and the number of badges earned, which is basically a metric of completion of lessons in the program. So they've been looking at how the number of lessons completed change over time after school shutdown. And they have shown that even for the best of districts, so students coming from high-income districts, there has been a reduction of about 10% of the number of lessons completed, but it's even even more severe for uh, students coming from middle and bottom income districts. So there's clearly a really strong impact in terms of the ability for students to complete their uh, homework, and it's even affecting even more severely students from underprivileged backgrounds. But there is uh, some positive lessons also that we can draw from the online teaching experiences. There is a team of researchers at Harvard Kennedy School and Bocconi University in Italy that conducted an experiment to see whether online homework tutoring program, where you basically have university students as tutors who are helping high school students from uh, disadvantaged uh, high schools, whether this has an impact uh, in terms of their academic performance. And they had very encouraging results, which showing that it improves academic performance, but also aspirations, well-being, and social-emotional skills of these students. And an intensive six-hour program actually doubled the effect on academic performance. So there are definitely some room to invest into online quality online teaching and to try to limit the negative effect that the pandemic has on the most disadvantaged students. It sounded like what you were saying, too, was that online so far, no one learns as much, but it, that there is an inequality to it. Exactly. We know that for these type of tools, there are the material conditions associated to it, whether you have access to a screen, whether you have access to a good internet connection uh, is not necessarily a given in most families. So this is a first constraint. And yes, the second constraint is to what extent you would have somebody at home who will be able to explain some of the materials that you don't understand and so on. So that's why these new innovative teaching tools such as online tutoring is something that, you know, should be extended and scaled up and supported in the future if we want to mitigate these inequalities. What are some of the policy prescriptions you think we should be talking about? That's a really big question. I would say that the current pandemic has you know, showed both new and reinforced labor market inequalities. Uh, we know that low-wage workers have borne the brunt of the economic pain of the pandemic. Not only they were more likely to be laid off, but also they were typically, for those who kept their job, they were typically facing health risk more than anybody else. And when we look at the employment statistics, there is a really a dramatic increase in the number of people who are unemployed or non-employed, so not even uh, in the labor force particularly, for instance, among Black and Hispanic workers in the U.S. So there are definitely a sort of acceleration on how severe this inequality in the labor, in the labor market can be. 
In terms of the policy responses, we have found that traditional macroeconomic tools, such as trying to stimulate aggregate demand or providing liquidity to businesses, may not have a very strong capacity to restore employment right now because consumer spending is still constrained by health concerns. People don't actually want to go to uh, stores and buy these services because they're worried about the virus. So addressing the public health crisis first seems to be like a really important aspect of the response for government. In terms of the more long-run approach to uh, what's going on in the labor market, we still need to see what's going to happen. We know that, for instance, childcare constraints on women might take some time to materialize. Women might actually adjust their the labor market decisions in the long run in terms of trying to find jobs that limit commuting time, for instance. So they might end up in occupations that are low paying or with like lower wage growth compared to men. So there are some labor market changes that would take some time to materialize, and we don't know how the labor market will be rebuilt. We have been exposed to a surge in the use of technology in the workplace, and some tasks have been transformed that could permanently be done uh, differently. And so there's still a lot of uncertainty of the permanent changes and how people, how work and technology might interact in the future. So something that we learned from the work, again, from the Opportunity Insights team, is that state-ordered reopening have modest impact on the economy. Forcing people to consume when there's still a lot of uncertainty about their health concerns is not necessarily going to be efficient. Maybe the best approach is to make sure that you provide a safety net for the workers that are going to be hit the worst by the current recession, and also try to think about potential training policies or how to make sure that you're going to help workers who will have to shift from one industry to another because of these deep underlying changes that we have with technology in the workplace. Yeah, that sounds, it sounds fascinating. It sounds like as an economist whose research focuses on inequality and labor, the economics of labor and gender in the workforce, this has got to be sort of an unprecedented moment for you in terms of what you're seeing and data you're getting. I'm just wondering what it's been like for you, what that, what your own personal work has been like. Well, I think like everybody else, when this happened, there was a lot of, you know, psychological cost of seeing both the health damage and the economic uncertainty and seeing how the situation was getting worse uh, every day. And, and especially uh, oftentimes looking at the lack of police, appropriate policy responses we care about the life of these people in the first place. And so I think as an economist, there is definitely a responsibility in trying to track what's happening uh, to the economy and try to document and look in the data uh, as much as we can what's happening for vulnerable social groups that we know are disproportionately affected by this pandemic and, and do our best to propose some research to, to help for the design of appropriate policy responses. And I think there is still very little that we know, and we need more time to figure out what are going to be the labor market impact of this pandemic. We have basically reached levels of unemployment in only a couple of months that took several years to materialize after the Great Recession. So what's going to happen next is, is still very uncertain. And I think we just have to be humble and to be working as hard as we can to, to help. Yeah, absolutely. This is... This has been like a really great discussion. I really appreciate you coming on. 
I did want to offer you one last opportunity. I mean, since you have a, a broader expertise on this, were there are there any other economic issues you're focusing on right now that you think are important for people to think about? I'm obviously passionate about the question of inequality. I think this is a class that I teach at the University of Toronto, and I'm uh, working right now on starting a podcast that would talk about economic research on inequality. The idea is to invite uh, emerging scholars to talk about new research with different perspective on this question, because I think it's really one of the most pressing issues in the public conversation right now. And uh, educating people on these on these issues is really important. Um, my own longstanding interest in gender economics stems from the fact that I think this dimension is important in so many aspects of the economic life in terms of how we recruit people, how people make, you know, basic economic decisions on a day-to-day -day basis, how they decide to invest in their own education, how they decide to marry, how they decide to retire. I think it's a fascinating topic and there's still a lot to learn about how we can find proper institutional design and policies to try to reduce gender gaps that still persist in many dimensions of the uh, economic life. So... One of the research that I'm really excited about is, is a paper that I've been working with my co-authors in France, where we look at the impact of female role models on the gender gap in science. We're trying to see whether exposing high school students to a positive model of a woman working in science can help them, uh, that can affect their college major decisions and change their aspirations for, the, for their future career. And it's a very light touch intervention. It's not very costly. You just, you know, send a successful woman in a classroom to talk about her own experience. And we see that this has really important impact on the probability for students to enroll in college major in science after high school graduation. So I think it's part of the research that I'm really excited about because I think it, it helps design like very neat and simple interventions that could somehow fix a certain number of gender gaps. Yeah, that sounds like a fascinating study that I would love to keep in touch with you about. I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your knowledge about this with me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was Clementine von Effenter, Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Toronto. Thank you for listening to Down to Business. And as always, thank you to our team. Music and production by Bryce Hall, editing by Yadula Hussein, and web support by Pamela Heaven, with a special thank you to Victoria Wells. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can get all your business news at financialpost.com.